Hasn't it been a stunning week? Are you guys grateful? The faucet turned off this dry weather. If we could just suspend this in time until about next April, right? This is, it's, it's unbelievable. And I personally, I want you to know that in this moment as I stand before you, I feel profoundly grateful for the passage that I have been assigned. And here's why. Typically, around here, if you pay attention, passages are assigned to me based on the level of obscurity and complexity. <laughs> There's a direct corollary, corollary. You can go online and just, just look at like the sermons and just the titles you know, that have been assigned to Pastor Christopher over the years, like giant angels and edible scrolls that cause John indigestion. You know, in Daniel, it's like there's a vision of a flying goat. You know, the only thing I haven't been assigned is like Ezekiel's visions, you know? But if we came to a passage, it's like it's a vision of like a wheel inside of a wheel. It's like, I'm your guy. And today, today's passage, it's not complex it's, it's beautiful, and it's all gospel. And it feels like it's actually an early Christmas present from Pastor Adam to me, and I'll, I'll take it. You're going to love it. Over the past few weeks here in our Roman study, we've been in Romans 9, and we have seen the beautiful, profound mystery of how God's sovereignty and elective purposes intermingle with human agency, with our responsibility and role in God's perfect plan for redeeming our broken world. And I honestly can't think of a better example of this intermingling of God's sovereignty and our responsibility than an entire chapter in the Bible devoted to evangelism, to sharing the gospel, which is what Romans chapter 10 is, by the way. So I want you to think about this. Right after Paul in chapter 9 tells us that salvation depends wholly and entirely, not on human will and our exertion or what we do, but on God's mercy and his sovereign grace, Paul turns right around and spends the next chapter telling us that no one can call on the name of the Lord and be saved unless someone is sent to share this good news. Now, what you may not know about me is I have a number of really close friends that are gifted evangelists. And they've got verses from Romans 10, locked and loaded, in season and out of season, whether they're in line at Starbucks or in the aisles of Home Depot. They're always on the lookout for divine opportunities to turn to someone and say something like this. If you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? <laughs> Did you know that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you can be saved? Would you like to pray with me? right now. And here's what I find super annoying. If I went up to somebody and asked them this exact same question, if you died tonight, do you know where you would go? 
it would come across creepy and they might call the cops on me. And I've tried it before and it hasn't produced the same fruit as my gifted evangelist friends. When people hear what they say, people get saved on the aisles of Home Depot. And I watch it and it's a great mystery to me. But here's what I know. The vast majority of Christians feel unequipped, they feel overwhelmed, and they don't feel particularly comfortable and qualified to share their faith in Christ with others. And, and if that's you, then you're not alone. Not by a long shot. In fact, I have a slide here, a recent study by Barna Research that was put out that is up there on the screen in text that is far too small to read. We keep saying that every time we show slides around here, but has the size of the screen changed? No. Um, it's too small probably to read. But what is fascinating about this is that of Christians across generations, so you got millennials, Gen X, boomers, and elders, the generational differences of sharing faith, over 95% of people believe that part of our faith, the central component, is sharing our faith in Jesus with others, evangelizing. And people believe 95 plus percent across generations that the best thing in the world that could happen to a person is that they would come to faith in Jesus and his ways would become their ways and they would be saved. And more and more people actually feel qualified and trained to share their faith. But here's what's a bit disturbing. Actually, about 47% of millennials today feel that it's wrong to impress your faith and share your faith with another person in the hopes that they will actually come to faith in Jesus. So why the gap here? Almost all Christians across the board believe that a central component of our faith is sharing the gospel with others. And the best thing that could happen to a person is that they'd come to faith and be born again. Why? So much discomfort with sharing our faith. Well, could it be that one of the reasons that old attitudes and approaches to evangelism are waning and not really working is because God is raising up new kinds of witnesses. He's raising up new kinds of witnesses, and this isn't the only time in history that God has done this. Case in point, some of you were around during the Jesus movement, and you remember how bad things were in the late 60s and early 70s. There were riots in the streets. There was racial unrest, and the civil rights movement was burst out of this unrest. There was the Vietnam War. You talk about global fears. There was the Cuban Missile Crisis. There was the assassination of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr., a massive drug epidemic that was sweeping across our country and a radical redefinition of sex that gave way to what was later called the sexual revolution. Sound familiar? 
There was a deep sense of hopelessness in the air, and church attendance was plummeting. Sound familiar? More and more young people were turned off by the church because they wanted to see faith in Jesus lived out, not just in Sunday mornings, but on the streets. And so many rejected and deconstructed their faith. Sound familiar? But then God, in great mercy and grace, poured out the Holy Spirit and disrupted everything, as he always does. And the Jesus movement was born. This movement, which almost all missiologists agree, was the greatest spiritual awakening in American history, gave way to new kinds of witnesses called Jesus people. Jesus people with long hair, guitars, and Jesus is groovy t-shirts. Now, one of these Jesus-loving hippies shared the gospel with a brilliant, sharp-witted, atheistic, long-haired guitar player named Guy Gray. And he came to faith and met Jesus. He became a worship leader alongside Chuck Smith and other leaders in the Jesus movement. And many years later, in 1989, he founded this church. So whether you know it or not, you're sitting here in this building this morning. We're gathered here together because of a Jesus movement. And guess what, folks? We need another Jesus movement. That's what we need this morning. Amen. Amen. We need another Jesus movement in a time where more and more people wake up feeling hopeless, empty, empty, terrified, where the very fabric of Western society feels like it's unraveling before our very eyes. Status quo Christianity, where we're ashamed to share our faith and disrupt the secular plausibility structures of our time. We need something more. We need God in grace to pour out his Holy Spirit and raise up new kinds of witnesses for this moment. Amen? Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 10 is going to help us this morning. We're going to jump back into our study in the book of Romans in verse 5 this morning. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord 
is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the word of Christ. Amen. This morning, what I'd like to do is walk through this passage and allow God to show us the kinds of witnesses, River West, that he's calling us to become today. And just as a heads up, while many of you are familiar with seeing me up here geeking out in teacher mode, today is going to involve a bit more preaching than geeking. So feel free to say amen or talk back, or you can sit back and sit, sip your coffee and say amen with your eyes. We, we love you. However the Spirit moves you this morning. Here's what I want you to know. Every genuine revival and spiritual awakening in history, from the revolution that took place in Rome after Paul wrote this letter in the first century, to the Reformation, to the Great Awakening, to the Jesus Movement, or the Jesus Revolution, as some call it, has been marked by witnesses who possess a certain set of qualities. And we're just going to walk through and look at what these qualities are for our moment right now. And quality number one, if you're taking notes this morning, is first and foremost, like the Apostle Paul, Christ is calling us to be witnesses that are unashamed of the gospel. Unashamed of our message. Remember what Paul, the apostle and evangelist, said about himself back in Romans chapter 1. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, but also to the Greeks. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And if you and I were honest, I think most of us would admit that the reason we feel so much apprehension to share our faith with others is we're secretly afraid of looking foolish or ignorant intolerant. Last week, Pastor Adam, who has been on fire <laughs> recently, preaching these truths that, that have been so powerful. Last week, he talked about how people have always stubbed, stubbed their toe on Jesus and taken issue with the radical claims of Christianity. And in our day and age, the two main things I'm convinced about the gospel that make people really uncomfortable 
are its simplicity and its exclusivity. Simplicity and exclusivity. What do I mean by that? Well, first and foremost, I want you to look again at how simply Paul lays out the gospel in Romans 10. Look at verses 6 to 8. This is beautiful and it's profound, but it's so simple. In verses 6 to 8, he says, The righteousness, right standing with God based on faith does not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. In other words, the gospel teaches us that righteousness and salvation, it's not something that we achieve through our own effort. You don't need to go up to heaven in your quest for enlightenment and righteousness or reach down into the depth of your willpower to obey or reach down into your past to atone for your sins. And that's because through Christ, God's righteousness came down from heaven for us. Jesus went down into the abyss of hell for your sins on Good Friday when he gave up his life on the cross and God brought Christ up from the dead on Easter Sunday. And you and I did absolutely nothing to make those realities come into our world. Absolutely nothing. The effort was all Jesus. So now, no matter who you are or what you've done, no matter how hopeless or helpless you feel, salvation is as close as your mouth and lips and your own heart because Christ has come to save us. And if you entrust your life to Jesus, you will never be put to shame. You'll be saved. You'll be saved. Now for some, when they hear this, joy wells up. It melts their heart. And many that have not experienced that kind of grace where you can look in the mirror, see who you are, and not have a thread of shame. For many, this news brings people to entrust their life over to Jesus as their Savior, Lord, and Teacher. They become Christians. But for many others, when they hear this gospel, it sounds too simplistic to account for all the complexities in our broken world, or it honestly sounds offensive, oppressive to our modern sensibilities. Really gifted, insightful pastor that we, we quote and reference a lot around here, Tim Keller. He, he's written a book um, that's actually free online if you're interested in reading it. It's called How to Reach the West Again. 
And in that, that book, he writes these words that I think are so exacting and, and telling us why it's so difficult to actually share our faith and, and to be witnesses for Christ in our present day and culture. He says, past evangelistic strategies assumed that nearly everyone held this shared set of beliefs about a sacred order, that there was a God, an afterlife, a standard of moral truth, and a sense of sin. We might call these the religious dots that evangelists could assume in their hearers. Think, insert, Romans Road, okay, right here. Evangelism was simply connecting the dots that listeners already possessed in order to prove the truth of the gospel. Now listen to this. Today's culture believes the thing we need salvation from is the idea that we need salvation. The thing that we need saving from in our day is, is the notion that we need salvation. And both in our own day and in, in Paul's, this sounds like foolishness. It sounds like foolishness. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, for the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So people in our day, they stumble over the gospel because it sounds foolish and simple. But perhaps the number one reason in our world that people reject the gospel today is because of its exclusivity. And here's the thing. There's no way around it. The gospel simply is exclusive. In fact, look again at what Paul says about Jesus' identity. If you have Romans 10 open, look at the two titles that Paul ascribes to Jesus in this passage. Perhaps you notice that in verses 6 and 7 that Paul refers to Jesus as the Christ. That we don't need to go up and ascend into the heaven, that is to bring the Christ down or descend into the, the abyss, that is to bring the Christ up from the dead. So one title he ascribes to them is Christ, and the other title is Lord. In verse 9, we see that Jesus is Lord. That's the primary confession, both of the early church and the church today, that Jesus is both Christ and Lord. So these titles that Paul ascribes to Jesus, he does that very intentionally, very intentionally. You see, for the Jews, the title Christ belonged only to the Messiah, to the anointed king and descendant of David who'd come to redeem God's people, rule over Israel, and establish an everlasting kingdom. So the word Christ means anointed king that all of the prophets proclaimed and said would come. So this attribute or title of Christ that was given to Jesus it's Paul's way of saying he's the king of kings. He's the long-awaited descendant of David. He's the one that's come to establish his throne on earth. It's an exclusive claim that the religious leaders deemed blasphemous and deserving of death. On the other hand, 
Paul knows there's going to be a lot of Gentiles reading and hearing this letter. So he tells them, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now, the Greek term that Paul uses here for Lord is kurios. A title given to Greek and Roman Caesars that they ascribed solely to themselves. For Rome, the goal of their entire empire was to bring everything under the subordination and rule of the Caesars. So as time went on, the Caesars would execute anyone who refused to honor, worship, and obey them as Lord. So super fascinating. Many archaeologists have found coins inscribed with the following words honoring one of the Caesars, one of the most egotistical, sadistic Caesars that took the throne, the name Caesar Augustus. So Augustus had this inscription imprinted on coins that were circulated throughout the Roman Empire. Listen to this. Salvation is to be found in none other save Augustus. And there is no name given to men in which then they can be saved. That was printed on coins, which helps shed light on why so many Christians were put to death and thrown into coliseums and, and killed by lions in the first century for sport as Christians went around proclaiming, Jesus is Lord. Or how about these words from the apostle Peter as he subversively refuses to bend a knee to Caesar. He sticks it to Caesar Augustus with these words in a sermon he preached in the book of Acts in chapter 4. How about this? These are fighting words from the apostle Peter. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. And guess what? It's not the name of Caesar Augustus. It's the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Folks, the gospel is the most exclusive message on the face of the earth because there's only one name that saves and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other name that has saving power. There's no other name. However, here's what's so fascinating about the gospel this simple exclusive message creates the most radically inclusive community on the face of the earth. The exclusivity of the claims of the gospel creates a community where everyone's welcome. And if you believe, I'm, I'm just impressing this upon this text, look at what comes after this confession of Jesus as Lord in verse 11 in the passage. Look down in your own Bible and see this. In verse 11, it says, for the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Church, quality number two that I believe Jesus is calling us to put on as his witnesses is we must become witnesses who are radically inclusive of others. 
Now, many, when I say this word inclusivity, like your guard goes up for different reasons. For many, it's a buzzword in our culture today, and you need to know that gospel inclusivity is different than how our culture tries to bring people to the table. It's unique. It's unique. And if you're paying attention, actually, to what this passage is claiming about Jesus, you might be saying to yourself, now, wait a minute, pastor. You're up here talking about inclusivity, and you just said that there's only one way to be saved. That doesn't sound inclusive at all. That sounds exclusive. And if you're thinking that, you'd be absolutely right. There's no other name underneath earth and heaven by which men can be saved except the name of Jesus. However, the gospel that professes this exclusive message and what it confesses about Jesus, that he alone can save, this message of salvation is open to all. In fact, did you notice in the passage the language of everyone, that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved? Friends, the gospel isn't a message that draws people to God based on their ethnicity, their education level, their income bracket, their political orientation, their sexual history, or moral decency. It simply tells us everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. Amen. Listen, friends, what made the gospel in the first century so scandalous was not whom it excluded, but whom it included. According to the Talmud, which is a collection of Jewish sayings and traditions, each morning a Jewish man would pray, thank you, God, that I'm not a woman a slave, or a Gentile. That's in the Talmud. But the gospel, here's what you need to know. It disrupted the racist, sexist, misogynistic, unjust social norms in the day by proclaiming that there's no distinction between Jews and Greeks between black people, white people, brown people, men or women, wealthy or poor, Democrat or Republican, because Jesus bestows his riches on all. And church, here's what's so beautiful. Hear this, hear this. The more diverse that the church becomes, the richer our witness to the world becomes. Amen. Amen. I hope that is the kind of church that you're interested in being a part of. Because the reason that so many turned to faith in the first century is it was a community that wasn't gathering people based on their distinctions. It was gathering people together in the name of Jesus. And they shared that unique hope. Friends, that's the kind of church we're aspiring to be. 
around here. This last week, I think I have a, a photo of this. Um, some pastors and friends of mine, uh, we serve on a team in our city called Together PDX, where, where the mission of this team is to unite the church in our city, to unite nonprofit organizations, to bring people together out of our divisions, to cooperate, to work together, to pray together. Uh, this last week, we held a dinner um, at this restaurant called Cooper's Hall, and on election day, uh, we had a room filled with 70 leaders of nonprofit ministries that reach out to the homeless, to the houseless, and our, our city. Over the years, organizations have not really been able to cooperate together, to work together. There's too much ideological division to really bring organizations uh, together to work with one another, to, to bring in local churches. If you're paying attention in our own community, the issue of houselessness is very, very intense. Um, right now, people, people have lots of opinions. And because of all of just the history of divisions, there aren't a lot of organizations working together. So the idea was to bring these leaders and a handful of faith leaders together to have a dinner and to start um, actually laying out spaces where we can collaborate and work together. And as this night uh, was kicked off, uh, a pastor in our city who's a good friend and, and a part of this collaboration movement among church leaders, his name's Rick, Rick McKinley, he opened up the night and, and he talked about the radical inclusivity of Jesus and how followers of Jesus in the first century, uh, that they came together, that they laid aside their distinctives and they shared tables with one another. And he basically just started preaching the gospel to the whole room. There's this beautiful moment as the wait staff and many in the room were not followers of Jesus Christ. They just, they stopped what they were doing, even the wait staff, and people were moved to applaud those words, because they were beautiful, because they were beautiful, and because I think deep down they knew it was true. And so a vision of a church that is bringing people together, people in our culture might not even believe that it's true, that the claims of the gospel is true, but when we lay aside our divisions and we come together, people can't deny that it's beautiful. And that's what our world needs to see, is churches like that. Amen? Beautiful feet is what Paul is going to show us next. So we've seen in this passage, the Lord's calling us to be witnesses who are unashamed of the gospel message. We're radically inclusive in our relationships. And lastly, what Paul's going to show us is that we need to be witnesses that are captivated by the urgency of this message by the urgency. Let me show you that. That's in verse 14. As Paul asks these questions, these rhetorical questions, there's a sense of urgency I want you to pay attention to in this passage. It says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? 
And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It's critical to remember that as Paul saying these words, inwardly he's anguishing and aching for his own people, for Israel, who've rejected Jesus, the Messiah. In fact, I imagine that he's in tears as, as he asks, how can they hear and call on the name of the Lord and be saved unless someone is sent? Because deep down he knows that his Jewish brothers and sisters will never come to faith unless messengers rise up. This is why Paul includes that prophetic picture from the prophet Isaiah from chapter 53. He quotes in verse 15 when he says, and how are they to preach unless they're sent? And now this is from Isaiah chapter 53. As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You see, friends, long before the advent of email or text messages on our phones, if you wanted to relay an urgent message, a message of great significance, then you needed a messenger. So throughout the Roman Empire, after a great battle was won or a new king took the throne, you'd find a messenger. And these messengers were called evangelists. That's what they were called. Euangelistes, evangelists, which literally meant messengers of good. You, good, and then angelos, a messenger. A messenger of good would go and get this news of historical importance, this urgent message. They'd get it out. So the picture here in Isaiah 53 is that there, there's these watchmen posted on the walls of the city and they're waiting all night and day for a report. Have you ever waited for news? Really significant news? Maybe you wait up all night if the news is critical. But then these watchmen that have waited up all night for the messenger to come Far out on the hills, they see a messenger running, running towards the city and shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, oh, how beautiful are the feet on, on the mountains of those who bring good news. That's the word gospel. How beautiful are the feet of the evangelists, the good news messengers that come. However, here's what I want you to know is one theologian, Carl, Carl F. Henry, put it. Folks, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. So I want you to imagine for a moment that somebody that you love, their heart is failing. This isn't hard for me to imagine because... One of our elders and, and a friend of mine, Chris Stunning, I've asked if I could share this. His heart 
is, is failing. He has a heart condition. And for 13 months now, he's been on a list waiting to receive the news that a heart is ready. A heart is available. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that the doctors are trying to get a hold of Chris to let him know, Chris, we have a heart for you. And they can't get a hold of him for some reason. Maybe he's out water skiing. I don't know. But they can't get a hold of Chris, so they call me. They know I'm a friend of Chris. I'm Chris's friend. They call me and they say, hey, we have a heart for Chris. You need to get a hold of him right now. Can you imagine how cruel it would be if I sat on that news? This urgent news, he's been waiting 13 months, counting every second, waiting for a heart. I'd put down the phone and I'd run. I'd run. I'd part heaven and earth and you would too for somebody that you love. How can we sit on news so urgent when the Lord is saying, hey, I have a heart for you. I have a heart for your friend. Will you tell your friend I have a heart for them? Their heart's failing right now. They have no hope right now. They feel stuck. They look in the mirror and honestly, nothing wells up but shame. I have a new heart for them. Would you go tell them I have a new heart for them? How can we sit on that news, River West? How can we sit on that news? The world needs messengers. We need witnesses. Lord, forgive us for our shame, for our trepidation, for our fear, being more ashamed saying the name Jesus than any other thing that could come out of our mouth. Lord, forgive us. Have mercy on us. Our world needs messengers, River West. Amen. Paul never gave up, never lost his sense of urgency of wanting all of his brother and sisters, Israel, to come to faith and meet Jesus. When they rejected him, persecuted him, as many of us have experienced that for following Jesus, he never retaliated, never turned his back, never treated them like they were dead to him, never gave up. And here's why I want you to see this. I'm not going to unpack everything in the rest of this chapter. I'm just going to read verses 18 to 21. And I want you to capture the heart attitude and posture of God towards our world. Okay? Verse 18, it pictures this rejection by Israel and God in mercy in his response. He says, I asked, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the end of the world. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses said, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation, that is the Gentiles. With a foolish nation, I'll make you angry. Then Isaiah, so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Church, the God of the universe has not turned his back on you. Even when we've sinned and rejected his claims, his ways, his hands are stretched out towards us all 
day long. Amen? He's not angry. He has not turned his back on you or your friends, your family, your neighbors, our city. His hands are stretched out to us all day long. In light of this truth, here's what I feel like God is calling us to to do, to respond, to bring this news out of our heads, into our hearts, and into our feet as a church. Here's some things that I think we should consider in response to this word that we've heard. Some of you, I believe God has brought you here this morning to open your heart so that you would confess Jesus as Lord today. That this would be a day of salvation. And here's what you need to know, as Paul said, that message and that word that can save, it's near you. You don't have to ascend, get your life more together, send up into heaven to find salvation. It's as near as your lips and your heart this morning. If you confess Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. It is that simple. For others, this week, as you celebrate Thanksgiving and sit across tables, you might be estranged from people in your family that need to hear good news. Good news. Come to the table. Instead of dividing over politics or, or whatever is in the latest news cycle, may your speech just be seasoned with Jesus. May you share good news and you say, oh, pastor, everybody around the table is already a Christian. Then just practice sharing your faith as somebody asks the question, what are you thankful for? Share the name of Jesus. Somebody in your life, ask God to put people in your path that need to hear good news. And then just ask for greater courage. Say, Lord, I don't want to be ashamed of this news. Give me wisdom and opportunities to share the good news of faith. And lastly, please support and pray for missionaries that are sent into hard places where it's difficult and dangerous to share the gospel. Please be praying for Pastor Nopum. He's asked for prayer this week. Is there evangelism efforts in Myanmar continue to go out no, Poom started ending all of his emails with a tagline. At the end of every email, Pastor No Poom ends his email by saying, no risk, no ministry. No risk, no ministry. River West, may the Lord give us grace and courage to take greater risks that many would see the good news of Jesus and be changed. Amen? Amen.